This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome back to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics this week. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney and I will be your charming host as we dive into a brand new topic. Now this week's topic is actually one that was suggested or requested I should say by a listener a while back. It took me a, a couple months actually to put together some of the research on this just because it's a larger topic dealing with the big continent of Europe. But they have basically asked about doing an episode on the likelihood of revolution in Europe coming in the next couple decades. And so the, that word revolution could mean a lot of different things. You can take it to mean like armed uprisings or political upheaval, changes of power, the breakdown of the EU and other continental treaties. And so we're going to kind of tackle this in kind of large scale across all of those platforms pretty much. But I really want to focus mostly on kind of what I think is the most likely scenario, and that's the potential breakdown of the EU going forward. But before we dive too far into that, I want to touch on a couple things. Uh, first, I wanted to just touch on the idea of armed uprisings, uh, because this is one potential interpretation of the word revolution. And as we have seen in you know years past, the continent of Europe has a long storied history of violence uh, that goes back centuries, millennia, really, uh, going long, long before the countries even existed as we know them today. There's been a long, long history of violence on that continent. So I do want to touch a little bit on that. And then we're going to dive into really talking about the EU and kind of how the European continent is set up. And then we'll take a, a short commercial break and then jump into the potential for the breakdown of the, the EU as well as kind of political upheavals and changes that we're seeing taking place across the continent. Uh, so let's start with talking about the idea of armed uprisings in Europe. Uh, as I said, Europe has a long, long storied history of violence across the continent. And so whenever you talk about revolution in Europe, there is always this kind of undergirding sentiment that we might be dealing with armed uprisings as opposed to just like political upheaval. And quite a few countries in the past across Europe have dealt with this. The French Revolution is pretty... Uh, it's probably the most famous one, but a lot of other countries across Europe have dealt with this as well. But the truth is, most of Europe, really since the establishment of the EU, has become much more peaceful. Uh, we've seen centuries of violence pretty much boil down to virtually nothing, at least in between countries across the continent of Europe, uh, since the EU was established. And so that incredible almost drop off the cliff in terms of interstate violence on the continent was was remarkable. And while we have seen violent acts in certain countries, you know, we just haven't seen the type of violence that we did for for centuries really leading into the formation of the EU. Now, anytime we deal with the concept of armed uprisings, the first question you have to ask is is it even feasible? Uh, in terms of, you know, is the population armed enough to carry out an armed uprising. And it's actually in this variable that I think we're going to see our, our strongest argument against the possibility of armed uprising, uh, because 
there was a report by the European Commission a few years back that basically found that 9 out of 10 EU citizens had never owned a gun. And of those who did own a gun, about 30% of those owned it for professional reasons, like they were in the police or the military. So gun ownership is a lot lower in these countries than you might find, say, in the United States, where, you know, I think the the number of firearms owned in the population per civilian is, is actually more than one gun per civilian, uh, whereas it's about a third that or less across most European countries, uh, including some very some countries that are very low. Uh, Great Britain, for example, only has about 6.6 guns per 100 inhabitants. Uh, Spain is only about 10. You do see a couple of countries that are higher. Scandinavia is all in about the 30s. Uh, Finland is actually about 45. Uh, France and Germany are both hovering around 30. Uh, Switzerland is kind of an unusual case because they have uh, conscription into the military. Every every person is required to, to join the military. It's kind of like Israel in that sense. And so they do have very high gun ownership rates there. But uh, mostly across Europe, you, know, you see very low rates. And in fact, across, say, Eastern Europe, it's even lower. You get into a lot of um, countries like Poland, which is 1.3%. And, and some of these kind of Eastern European countries, I just read off a couple of the numbers, 83 5.5, 0.7, 6.2, uh, you know, those type of very low numbers. Croatia is about 20%. Uh, Serbia is one of the highest ones in Eastern Europe at about 378 uh, guns per 100 inhabitants. And so gun ownership, which would provide the physical capabilities for countries to engage in armed uprisings, is fairly low. And in fact, the EU has made moves in recent years to, to tighten its firearms uh, control laws, basically banning converted semi-automatic firearms, uh, standard capacity magazines that are more than 21 rounds. That was banned, I think, in 2015 or 2016. And actually, there was a, a push in Switzerland, of all places, that they needed to tighten their uh, gun ownership laws to bring them back into compliance with the European Union. And Switzerland agreed to do so, uh, which bans access to certain types of weapons. Switzerland still has some of the, the most lax laws on gun ownership of any country in the EU, but uh, they even moved to institute a stronger gun control, which angered a lot of their citizens who see themselves as being very, very capable. Uh, actually, pretty much all men in the country, I think, are required to learn how to fire a firearm, and they hold a annual competitions for teenagers to improve accuracy and teach them gun safety and things like that. So so there was a lot of citizens within Switzerland that were pretty upset by this, but uh, even Switzerland has kind of been moving towards banning more and more guns. Uh, and so this is something that I think is just going to make it very difficult for any sort of true armed uprising to take place. You may see things on smaller levels. Uh, we have seen a rise in, say, terrorist attacks across certain countries, and there have been rises in other types of violence, uh, rapes, and various types of assault in certain countries as well. Switzerland, uh, sorry, Sweden in particular has seen a rise in some of those, Germany as well. And so we have seen a rise in certain types of violence, but if we're talking about like true armed uprising and to the point of revolution, I think that's pretty unlikely. Now, what we are much more likely to see though in Europe, and I think this is actually is probably more likely than not, is to see a shift in how they govern themselves. And by that, I mean the, the EU, I think, is about to undergo some pretty major changes going forward. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about the EU itself, well, what it is right now. And then uh, after the commercial break, we're going to talk about kind of how it's changing and potential futures for it and kind of the breakdown of the overall international organization. 
All right, but let's take a, a step back and talk about the European Union itself. Now, I've actually done an entire episode of this podcast where I talk about international organizations, and I really focus pretty heavily on the EU, so I won't go into too much detail on this. But basically, the European Union was, or I should say is, a, um, a political and economic union of sorts. There's 28 different countries across Europe um, that have kind of banded together. They use a single internal market using a standardized system of laws that can apply across all member states in the region. They use, oh, let's say most of them use the, the euro currency. About 19 of the 28 use the euro for their currency and passport controls have been kind of abolished in their, in those countries. So you can kind of move from one country to another. If you have visited Europe recently or you live there, you know how easy it is to move from country to country. A few years back, I, I traveled to so Europe actually did kind of a backpacking thing across Europe for a month, and I flew into one country in Europe, in Iceland, and I never showed my passport again until I left out of Italy. I went through, I think, 10 different countries in that time period and only showed my passport getting into Europe and getting out and didn't have to show it at all moving between countries. So it's very, very easy, and that's a lot of the EU reasoning is they want to try to unify the continent in that capacity. Now, the EU, because it's kind of a, a single market, they operate together economically as well. They produce a, a GDP of almost $20 trillion, that's U.S. dollars, uh, which is about 24 to 25% of the global GDP. So despite only having about 7 to 8% of the world's population, they produce about 25% of GDP around the world. And as part of this, you know, the EU countries all pretty much have very high human development indexes. They tend to be very good places to live on average. And they, they operate kind of together on a lot of diplomatic missions. They The EU actually represents itself at the, at the United Nations. Now, each country does also get their kind of own unique representative to show up. But the European Union gets its own representative, which is kind of unique. It represents itself at the UN, the WTO, which is the World Trade Organization, the G7, the G20, which are other international economic groups. And the European Union itself has been kind of described by multiple people as kind of its own type of superpower. And in fact, when people talk about kind of where we see the world structure moving going forward, a lot of times you'll hear them talk about the world becoming a, a multipolar world with the superpowers being the United States, the EU as its own like superpower together, and then either China or Russia maybe. Uh, and so talking about it as a tripolar world or something to that effect, a multipolar world. But basically this international organization, this international union has a lot of unification across the continent on a lot of different fronts, politically, economically, socially, uh, immigration wise. And this all really came about kind of at the end of World War II. Because the Great World War in the 1940s had devastated the continent. There was a huge rise in extreme uh, nationalistic like violence, obviously from the Nazis. And the continent had lost huge chunks of their population, particularly certain countries. France had been devastated in particular, but other countries as well had lost massive amounts of their population. And so there was a huge kind of push to try to heal the continent post-World War II, and one way that was done so, actually Winston Churchill was, was kind of famously an advocate of this, was to push for what he called a United States of Europe. 
And this took place in 1946. It was a speech he gave at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. And this kind of was one of the first major world leaders in Europe to really push for some sort of unification principle across the continent. And so we saw after that a handful of things pop up. The Hague Congress uh, helped lead to the creation of kind of the European Movement International and the College of Europe, where a lot of world future leaders would kind of study together. There was this principle that they were going to try to put together a, a university of sorts, kind of a postgraduate study. Uh, where a lot of leading families across Europe could kind of work together. It also led to the founding of the Council of Europe, uh, which was one of the first big efforts to bring them together. Uh, it was an international organization that was established to push for things like human rights and democracy and rule of law. It was uh, much more focused on like human values rather than economic or trade issues. But it was seen as kind of a, a forum where a lot of different countries could come together and talk things through. And so with those type of kind of background groups, we started to see other countries push for more and more unification. And in 1957, there were uh, six countries. That's Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and West Germany signed what was called the Treaty of Rome. Now, the Treaty of Rome came about in 1957, and uh, actually it went into effect in 1958. And this was the, the very first formation of what becomes the EU. Now, at the time, it wasn't called that. It was called the European Economic Community, but it basically was establishing kind of a customs union, economic integration for the continent. And those six countries were kind of the first ones to, to do so. There were several other treaties that were signed kind of across this time period as more and more countries decided to start joining this. And we saw countries like uh, France, Denmark, Portugal, Spain, Greece over the next few centuries, sorry, a few decades start to join this organization. And in 19, I think it was 86 or so, they, they actually start using what has become known as kind of the European flag and start really operating much more together under this official symbol to bring the continent together. And this expansion has actually continued to move forward as well with countries like Austria, Finland, Sweden joining in the 90s, uh, Cyprus and Malta, uh, former communist states started to want to join once the Soviet Union fell. Uh, we, so we started to see in the 2000s countries like Bulgaria, Romania, Lithuania, Latvia, etc. And there's a lot of other countries that have kind of started to move into this, this organization. But in 2002 was kind of the biggest change to the organization when the euro started to replace national currencies in a lot of different states. It initially started with 12 member states, but since then that the eurozone, as it's called, uh, has included 19 countries. And so it's actually the second largest reserve currency in the world right now. And so we have seen the EU really grow dramatically since its uh, initial establishment back in 1958. But the main reason that we're really talking about this and the reason I'm bringing this up at all is because since about 2010, give or take, the EU has started to face a handful of serious challenges and threats to its its cohesion. Uh, we had a debt crisis that affected quite a few of the Eurozone countries. There has been a refugee influx from the Middle East with countries like Syria and Yemen undergoing massive civil wars and creating huge numbers of refugees. And so we're seeing increased mi migration across the continent, which is straining a lot of the economies of several countries. 
And then most recently, we saw the UK or Great Britain argue that they're going to try to withdraw from the EU and they actually voted to do so. Uh, there was a referendum on kind of its membership that was held back in 2016 and about 52% of the, the country voted to leave. And so the the UK has kind of formally initiated that withdrawal process for leaving the EU. And so that's actually led to a pretty major challenge. Now, still to this day, or three years later, the UK has not left. They're still trying to work out the details of it. But the fact that you have the, the very first country ever trying to leave the EU, I think is going to be an interesting, unique challenge moving forward. And so we're going to talk about kind of what I think that means after uh, the UK officially leaves and really what kinds of upheaval may occur going forward too. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about, on the other side of the commercial break, the the rise in populism as a as kind of an ideology across the continents. We're seeing this pop up across uh, the, actually across the world really, but across Europe in particular, we're seeing this, this rise of a new ideology. And so we'll talk about that and kind of what that means for the future of Europe and potential political upheaval or political revolution on the continent and what that may mean for Europe going forward. And so I know this first part has been mostly background, but after this quick commercial break, we're really going to dive into the meat of this topic. So I appreciate you guys sticking with me. I'll be back with you guys in just a minute. Thanks for listening. All right. Welcome back. Thanks so much for sticking with me through that commercial break. Give me a chance to rest my voice for a minute. Uh, we're going to go ahead and jump right back into the topic at hand. Now, as I kind of ended, we've had the EU in place for quite a while now, since the late 50s. And by a lot of standards, it's been fairly successful. I mean, we really have seen violence, interstate violence, drop off dramatically uh, since this was put into place. Obviously, you had centuries of violence culminating in two world wars that devastated the continent. The EU goes into place and war between countries has basically vanished. So by a lot of measures, you would consider this to be a success. And in fact, there are some pushes to continue to expand the EU and to enlarge it even further. There are five current candidates that are being considered for future membership in the EU. Turkey, which has actually they applied back in the late 80s and have never been accepted. And if you listen to this podcast, you uh, will understand why I don't think Turkey will ever be accepted into the EU. But they are considered a, a potential candidate. You have North Macedonia, which applied in 2004 and is working towards that. Montenegro, Albania, and Serbia was the most recent one that applied in 2009. And uh, so all of these these candidates, they need to reach certain levels and standards. And the, the phrase is they, uh, any European state needs to respect the principles of liberty, democracy, respect for human rights and fund fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. And so those are kind of the criteria for gaining access to the European Union. They actually have specific measures that they look for. And so those five countries have kind of been working towards meeting those standards. And once they do, they may be uh, accepted. Now, the last four I mentioned, the non-Turkey countries, they are all kind of progressing in that direction. But there is still a push to continue to expand the EU and to try to make it even more successful. However, and this is where I really want to focus for the rest of this episode, the EU has started to show its cracks. Uh, over the last decade or so. Uh, we've seen little things here and there for the last couple decades, but really starting with kind of the European debt crisis, starting around, I say, 2009, I believe is when it started, but really didn't become a big deal until 2010 and the few years after that. But this was, uh, you frequently hear it referred to as the European debt crisis or the Eurozone crisis, but this has been a 
a multi-year debt crisis that's been taking place across the continent for the last decade. And basically what this breaks down to is that there are several member states of the EU, five in particular, it's Greece, Portugal, Ireland, Spain, and Cyprus, were unable to repay their government debts um, without the assistance of some sort of third party like other countries or the European Central Bank or the IMF or something like this. Now, there's a lot of different reasons for this, kind of depends on which country you're looking at. And I'm not going to get too much into the details of like why these debts country by country emerged, but it had some pretty dramatic effects across the continent, uh, some pretty significant adverse effects on like the, the economies of the continent, labor market, uh, un unemployment rates in Greece and Spain reached over 25%, which means that one out of every four adults was unemployed in those two countries. And we saw a pretty low level of economic growth, not only for uh, the the eurozone, which was where they, they all use the euro, but for the whole European Union. And we have seen uh, power shifts in about 10 different eurozone countries where different parties are managed to take power, in part due to these kind of long-term economic problems and you saw lower lowering interest rates giving out cheap loans from country to country the ECB which is that that European central bank and there were really like dozens of different bailout programs that were initiated for some of these member states uh, since that financial crisis really uh, blew up in the about 2009 or so and on top of a lot of these bailouts too we had quite a few other different policies that were put into place the european financial stability facility uh, which was aimed at as you would guess from the name financial stability across europe uh, you had the european financial stabilization mechanism which was an emergency funding program that was put into place in 2011 uh, you had the Brussels Agreement, which was when several countries, actually I think 17 countries, met in Brussels and talked about writing off uh, some of, actually agreed to write off about 50% of the Greek debt at the time. And so you had a lot of different measures and policies that were put into place that had ripple effects across Europe. And so this had major, major impacts on a lot of different countries. And, and really what it did long term is that it started to strain the relationships between a lot of these European countries that have been getting along for so for so long because you had countries like the UK and Germany, which felt like they were putting in so much money into keeping the EU afloat because the their economies were doing well and they were not getting much out of it as all that money was being funneled into helping countries like Greece and Spain. And so you started to see the relationships between these countries start to, to break down and show a few cracks as countries like the UK and Germany were not particularly happy with putting so much money in and getting virtually nothing out, while countries like Germ uh, Greece and Spain were putting virtually no money in because they were in so much debt and getting tons of money poured back into their economy. Uh, and so what happened is because this the, the EU was so integrated economically, it meant that when one country started to fail economically, that had these ripple effects that created problems across the entire continent. This is actually part of the reason why the UK ultimately votes to leave just a few years ago. And they decided to, to get out of this because they were not happy with, with the way it was currently set up and how they were being used to fund other countries that were not able to uh, maintain their economy nearly as well as the UK was doing. And this has had, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, there were about 10 countries that had major political impacts from this as well as uh, Ireland, 
Portugal, Finland, Spain, Slovenia, Slovakia, Italy, Greece, the Netherlands, France. Uh, all of these countries saw unexpected ends to their national governments and saw new parties come to effect. And these, those are just the ones that took place in the early 2010s, uh, leading up to the French presidential election where Nicolas Sarkozy lost. It's the first time since the early 80s that an incumbent had failed to gain a second term. And so you saw a pretty hefty political impact across the continent as well. But if it wasn't enough that they were having economic problems, the next big crack in the EU's armor starts to arise with the European refugee crisis. This began in about 2015, and pretty much what happened is that there were a large number of people coming in from uh, the Middle East and Africa that all kind of flooded over the Mediterranean Sea and into Europe. And a lot of this came from uh, drought and poverty, but a lot, though, came from the various uh, wars that were taking place, particularly Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, and then a lot that were fleeing from uh, the terrorist group known as ISIS or ISIL. And so you had a lot of people kind of flooding across the Mediterranean Sea and into Europe. And what happened was the number of uh, migrants skyrocketed. In particular, we're looking at places like uh, Germany, Sweden, Hungary, Austria. And so these countries suddenly start to see huge spikes in the number of asylum applications and the number of incoming migrants and refugees. And while this is kind of something that's a bit of a tricky subject, I mean, obviously refugees coming from war-torn countries is something you really do want to help with. But what happened is because they came across in such large numbers, this large-scale migration from the Middle East and Africa into Europe, there was a, a pretty hefty toll taken on the economies of these countries that were suddenly having to deal with a large spike in population. And on top of this, too, because so many of the migrants were arriving in Europe uh, by sea, we saw quite a few different deaths from shipwrecks, uh, including one that sank... Uh, in the Mediterranean Sea in 2015, who had a death toll of more than 1,200 people. And it meant that there was not only just a refugee crisis, but a humanitarian crisis on their hands as well that Europe was suddenly having to deal with. And this whole situation with people suddenly needing to flee their countries actually led to a, a spike in human trafficking as well, as there were a lot of people who kind of very unscrupulously started to target and take advantage of these individuals who were seeking asylum and turned it into kind of a, a modern day slave trade at times as well. And so there was this massive emergency that was basically taking place on the shores of a lot of different European countries. And then a lot of countries a little bit further inland, say Germany, were starting to really struggle as they were suddenly dealing with this influx of, of asylum uh, seekers where they were suddenly unable to handle their growing population as their economy just wasn't equipped to, to handle that, that sudden spike. And the debate about how to handle this actually sparked even more political arguments across the continent with a lot of different parties cropping up. A lot of parties that were arguing Europe's borders should be entirely open to refugees, others who were arguing the borders should be closed completely, and then everywhere in between as to how you are supposed to handle this. And there, there were a lot of issues, I would argue, rational ones on both sides. Obviously, 
when you have such a humanitarian crisis, you desperately want to be able to to help these people, particularly uh, young women, children who are struggling in some of these war-torn countries. But at the same time, when they were coming and just flooding into countries that were not capable of handling that influx, it left them in impoverished conditions and in conditions where the po- the population of the country too started to struggle because they were having massive numbers of of young people particularly coming into your country and not able to work uh, actually ended up causing a lot of crime rates to spike a lot of poverty numbers to spike and and so this was a very tricky situation and especially kind of in 2015 2016 at, th- at this point in time there were more people in the world had been displaced by conflict than at any point since world war ii and so a lot of people were were really arguing this was a, a global problem but it was really being heaped on a lot of europe and a lot of european countries because the way to distribute asylum sp- uh, seekers across European member states was was not working the way that they were hoping to, but they were being being kind of forced into this because so many people were dying just trying to get out of their countries, dying on the approach into Europe uh, from war, from poverty, from drought across the Middle East and North Africa. And this is actually something that hasn't really ended either. While the data on this does show that the overall numbers of immigrants coming into Europe is on the decline, uh, significantly on the decline, it is not over. This is not over by a long shot. This is still ongoing as you have countries like Spain, Italy, Greece, a lot of those countries right along the Mediterranean who are really still dealing with a lot of this, this influx. And several of the countries more inland have really tried to to shut down their borders because they just can't handle it physically anymore. And this is something that has really damaged the EU potentially uh, terminally because their their inability to deal with the sudden influx of migrants and refugees coming coming across their borders has strained the relationship across the whole continent. And the influx of migrants is a a topic that a lot of different political scientists have looked into over the years as to how do you handle immigration just in general. And it's something that's, that's very tricky. It's a tricky topic because a country, in order to absorb immigrants, needs to be able to absorb them. They need to be able to bring them into their society. And what's happening is when you have this sudden influx, you're not able to bring them in in any sort of cohesive manner where they're able to really enter into society and they end up in migrant camps and so they're stuck in these very poor almost tent-like cities where they continue to struggle and so then on top of both that and the debt crisis you also have brexit and this was the the withdrawal of the uk from the european union i've actually talked about brexit on here before uh, so I'm not going to go into too much detail on this, but this is the first time a country has tried to leave the EU. And I think it's really uh, more of an effect of the cracks or an end result of the cracks that we're seeing in the relationship across the continent than a cause of them. But there are plenty of countries that are paying very close attention to this as you know they may potentially one day want to leave the European Union as well. All right, now that's a lot of backstory. So we're going to take a step back now and really dive into, for the last few minutes of this, what might be going on going forward with Europe and uh, what we kind of might expect to see from the European Union going forward. Uh, So there's a couple of things that we've started to see. First is the rise of what you might consider nationalism across the country or across the continent. And we're seeing this in a lot of different countries as the nationalist party which can vary country to country so in sweden it'd be the sweden democrats 
in Denmark, it's the Danish People's Party, etc. In Slovakia, it's a party called Our Slovakia. But what we're seeing is that there are quite a few countries that are seeing spikes in their nationalist party movements. Both Germany and Spain have seen rises in their nationalist parties. Actually, one of the biggest political stories in Spain for a long time has been the sudden rise of the nationalist party called uh, called Vox. They got into parliament for the very first time ever uh, just this past year as they got more than 10% of the vote. So they're seeing a rise in nationalism there. The Sweden Democrats actually gained about 18% of the vote in their general elections last year. It's kind of an anti-immigration nationalist party. And we're seeing this really across the, the continent. I can keep naming countries, Finland, Estonia, Hungary, uh, Slovenia. And what I think is happening here is a, a combination of a couple things. Uh, first is that what we're seeing is a little bit of a backlash to the the sovereignty movement from the EU. And by that, I mean that there was always some criticism of the EU, even from the very early years, that it took away from the sovereignty of countries. Basically, countries are unable to govern themselves because they're now beholden to the larger body. And so I think we're seeing this a little bit as there are some populations across Europe that are disappointed with some of the continental policies that have been passed that may be at odds with what they think is best for their specific country. Now, the rise of populism is frequently associated with the right, and uh, most of the time you'll see populists being kind of right-leaning, although they are not always that way. There are plenty of populist left-wing groups as well. But one of the other major reasons that we're seeing this kind of rise in populism is the economic issues. As we have seen the uh, countries suddenly seeing, for instance, in the UK, we'll use Brexit as an example, they see their policies being used to prop up countries like Greece, which went through a massive debt crisis, whereas they were not necessarily what was best for the UK. And so you see populations of people that believe that their countries are being manipulated and used for their money rather than passing policies that were best for for themselves and so kind of on both this immigration front with the rise of the the refugee crisis but also on the economic front with some of the the economic cracks that have emerged across europe we have seen kind of the the center parties kind of collapse and we've seen kind of a move more extreme on, on both ends really but especially among any groups that identify as, as populist or nationalist and a lot of people have pointed to the election of Donald Trump as kind of another domino falling in that vein of populism around the world. As you had Brexit, you have the Americans with Donald Trump, uh, you have Italy as their populist parties helped push uh, a referendum result that forced one of their prime ministers to resign. Uh, you have uh, the far right National Front in France, which was uh, by Marine Le Pen who became quite popular. Uh, even Angela Merkel in Germany has, has really seen a pushback. And it's a lot of it comes down to this idea of, you know, what's the purpose of a country? You know, is a country's government put in place to do what's best for that country or to do what's best for the world? And this has been a long-standing question uh, that you will see. And this is a message that Trump actually kind of exploited with his campaign because he used that phrase, America first, or make America great again, right? Really played on this kind of state-centric idea that the government's role is to focus on America and to leave the rest of the world to other bodies, to other parts of the world. And so Europe is kind of a a hotbed of this or a good testing ground for a lot of this because you ha actually have 
a European government of sorts with the EU that is designed anyway to try to help countries put aside their their national focused ideas and look to a kind of a broader continent, what's best for the European continent. And so you're seeing kind of a pushback against that, that they don't believe continental policies are what's best and that countries should do what's best for each individual country. And I think Great Britain was probably one of the first big ones to fall. But what we're seeing is probably a, a rise that will last for a little while among some of these populist groups. And it's quite likely that in the next, say, decade or so, I think we're going to see at least one other country try to get out of the EU. I, I do think they're keeping a close eye on the UK and how it's going there, and it's not going well, So, which may delay other countries from trying to follow suit. But there are several other countries, without going into too much detail, that are unhappy with the way the EU is going. It wouldn't shock me if Germany sees kind of a rise in that sentiment as well, particularly because they're one of the ones that's been pouring the most money into the EU without getting as much out of it. And in fact, I think one of the biggest predictions that you're going to see coming out of Europe going forward is that we're going to see the kind of traditional left-right divide disappear, or maybe not disappear entirely, but kind of fade away. And we're going to see parties kind of take shape along a different spectrum along this kind of country versus continent divide in other words are you more of a nationalist populist party and this will appeal across the traditional left-right spectrum although almost certainly will be a little bit more right-wing and then you'll see parties that kind of are much more pro-eu centric and so i think these kind of this kind of evolution of the european political landscape will be drastic uh, it will be intense and I think it can be pretty historic as well. Uh, and I do think the erosion of that kind of traditional left-right idea is a much stronger on the left right now. The These evolutions, as we're seeing, say, in Italy and Germany, are, are much more pronounced there along the left-wing side. But I think what we're going to see is we're going to see an upheaval of sorts of, of how political parties view themselves and how they portray themselves to the rest of the world. Uh, second, I do think the next thing we're going to be seeing is that politics will become more and more polarized than ever across Europe. We're already seeing uh, increasing numbers of polarization, broad ideological shifts. We're seeing extreme positions represented much more frequently in European governments. Uh, for instance, there was there's a, um, a study that basically ranks parties between kind of a zero and a 10. Basically, if you're a zero, you're, you're very left-wing. If you're a 10, you're right-wing. Any sort of centric parties tend to be like fives, four to five, six, something like that. And while, while the scale of this is kind of arbitrary, you do it is useful because you can kind of see broad strokes of how ideologies are comparing over time and across different countries. And what we're seeing is shifts further and further away from that kind of five-based center. It's interesting because while you do tend to see this a little bit more right-wing than left, it's not entirely that way. Uh, Great Britain has moved right as it's kind of moving towards Brexit, etc. Uh, but Greece has gone left. And it's interesting because when you look at kind of the average of all ideological scores across the continent, it's actually pretty remarkably consistent. But when you look at individual countries on their own, as opposed to averaging them all across the spectrum, we're finding that parties at the edges of that political spectrum, kind of the far right or the far left, are gaining an increasing number of seats. Just as an example, when you look at kind of national parliament seats in the EU, what they found is that center parties, the kind of that again in that four, five, six range, 
have fallen. They were about 25% back in, let's say, the 1980s. They owned about 25% of the seats, and now they're down to about 15, actually maybe less than 15% of the seats nowadays. Uh, same thing has taken place with European uh, parliament seats, not national parliament, but at the, at the EU parliament level. Uh, we're seeing that also fall from its high in the early 90s of about 24, 25 to about 12 or 13 percent now. Uh, and so we can kind of look at this shift as a rising kind of extremism on both sides as far right and far left parties have been successfully managing to capitalize on a lot of concerns that their constituents have. So we're, we're seeing kind of a, a more and more polarized European society. And I think what this ultimately may end up leading to, say, long-term takeaway here, getting back to the original question of do I think a revolution is at hand in Europe, I don't think we're looking at an armed uprising, insurrection, you know, a revolution here in that sense. But Europe's political system and the EU is weakening. Europe is kind of at a crossroads here. Uh, the most recent parliamentary elections have shown a, a continent that is more fragmented than ever. And I think it's quite likely that these cracks in the EU body are going to continue to, to grow as, the, as these divisions widen. And depending on how the UK comes out of this whole Brexit situation, let's call it, uh, I think you may see other countries try to follow their lead as well. And so if we're look, really looking forward kind of what the future of, you know, say European politics are, I think there's a few things that we can can expect. I think the, the economic unity, the economic integration of Europe is likely to collapse in the near future in the sense that maybe they will go away from using a common currency again. I, I think the euro that we see today will not be nearly as strong in the future. We'll always see some countries adhere to it, but I think there's going to be a, plenty of countries that start to realize they would rather have their own currency not necessarily tied to other countries. The common current, I'm not saying necessarily the euro was a bad idea in the, in the beginning. Uh, I do think there were some, some positive elements of it, but there is not as much of a need for it in terms of kind of the broader integration. And I think this would be a, a very interesting way for, for countries to express their kind of individual nation-centric ideas while still remaining part of a kind of a global marketplace. And so I think the, the euro itself will start to, to fall apart. Again, I, don't, I doubt it'll ever go away, but I think there will be several countries that kind of pull out of that, the euro zone. Next, I do think there are certain fields in which this integration will last. I think the security and defense field is, is a place where we will continue to see an integration because it's one where it's a little bit more necessary and a little easier for, for countries to get on board. It's a lot easier for a country to see how say, um, an Eastern European country being invaded can kind of affect them as well because they're encroaching for closer and closer and emboldening, you know, some foreign power. So I think there is still room for an EU-like body that will maintain its integration on certain elements. I do think, though, that the integration is more likely to fade than it is to grow. Integration will probably only work along certain policy fields and not in all. Because until you convince people that it's more important to be 
just from like an identity standpoint to be European than it is to be German or to be French or to be British or Swedish or whatever else, you're always going to have this kind of national identity that's, that's super important to the people. And I, I think it should be important to the people as well. Uh, this is something that's, that's really tricky because anytime you integrate a lot of different cultures and let's be honest, Europe is full of all kinds of different cultures, you know, some very ancient historical ones, you know, like Greece in Italy that go back so, so long uh, with the ancient Roman empire and the Greek empires and stuff to some of the more, the more recent countries, but you see all of these cultures coming together and integration almost by definition blends them. And in blending, you tend to lose a lot of what makes your culture unique. And there's going to be a hefty pushback across Europe on this because there has been already, there has been some pushback and we're starting to see it even more so as they're realizing it's not just cultural, but it's also economic. So to get back to the original question, cause I know we're going really long today. I, I think if we're talking about the possibility of revolution in Europe, I think if you're, if you're really looking for it, what you should look for is continued cracks in the EU because the EU is going to be, or has been for a while now, the, the kind of preeminent international political and economic body that's for the most part successfully integrated lots of different countries. As I said, there's you know 28 different countries now that are part of this, but we're starting to see that it only goes so far. And this is a concern that has plagued a lot of different international organizations over the years from the United Nations uh, to NATO to the EU and the African unions and things like this. Uh, so Europe is has always been kind of a testing ground for this. And I think if we're going to see a revolution in Europe, it's going to come in the form of politics. I think we're going to see a political upheaval in Europe and we're going to see a real pushback against the kind of pro-EU ideology that's just existed. Uh, so it's, we're not going to see the pushback in terms of a left-right spectrum, but we're going to see this kind of pro-EU, anti-EU push. And we're going to see, in my opinion, I think we're going to see a real rise in, in resistance to international organizations, institutions. And we're going to see a very different Europe, I think, going forward. It may take some time. I'm thinking we're talking 20, 30, 40 years, if not more. But I do predict a Europe kind of long term that will look very different than how we see it today uh, as countries really do try to balance that kind of integration that is so useful in a lot of different ways obviously and you know crossing the border and economics and having a, a one uh, continent market is, and security and defense these are all really useful things but trying to balance that with kind of a nationalist you know how, how do we do what's best for our people and our country mindset uh, and so we do see a europe i think that will will change dramatically and if we're talking about revolution in that sense i do think it's possible i, I think we're going to see a, the potential for a rise in in that type of political revolution uh, but we're way over time today and so i'm going to go ahead and close out the episode i feel like this is a massive topic to tackle maybe even too big to tackle in a single episode i hope i did at least a little bit of it justice uh, if you're interested in getting in contact with me, you can find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. Please find me, hit that follow button. I'd be happy to continue this conversation with you or any other conversation uh, that you have on your mind. If you use Facebook instead, you can find my author page. It's J Robert Kinney. Please find me and hit that subscribe button to my Facebook page. And you can continue this conversation there as well. Now, that's also an author page that I use. I do write mystery novels. You can find uh, both of my books on Amazon. 
they were called Precipice and Splintered State. And they're both on Amazon for paperback and for Kindle under J. Robert Kinney. So please go check those out as well. Uh, they're two things I'm very, very proud of. So go check those out. I really appreciate it. Now, if you're interested in advertising on the podcast or uh, assisting the podcast in any way or, or helping me, helping support the podcast, you know, I do have a Patreon account you can find online, or you can just get in contact with me. I'd be happy to talk with you more about advertising or any other uh, means of support in that sense. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and close things out. Uh, so until next time, this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one.